Hello, everyone. This is episode 13 of High Fantasy, and today we're actually joined from a managing editor from Jolly Fish Press named TJ, and uh, we will launch into a nice, hopefully educational conversation with him as soon as the rest of us report on what we've been doing since the last episode. Has anyone been productive? Uh, I've been moderately productive. Uh, I'm in the middle of my big flashback scene right now, which I feel like it's going good. I just don't know how much of it I'm actually going to keep and how much I'll kick out. But uh, it's it's been fun to write the sort of the flashback a little bit. Like the main Corlex finally met Molly. It's only taken 135 pages, but they finally met each other. So I feel like that's a that's a pretty big milestone for the book. Yay, Colin, have you done anything? No, <laughs> I've got nothing for the past two weeks. Okay. Well, last time you said that you at least were thinking. Have you been thinking? Yeah, I'll give myself that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have been likewise not really doing much. Uh, some family, two different, very dear to me family members have gotten health problems right now, so I've like, I'm just helping out and uh, also thinking that maybe I want to go from my sci-fi to my fantasy book again and. Then I remember all the problems I had with that one, and I want to run away from it all. Floating City <laughs> but, one? Yeah. Floating City one. Oh, well, no, the other one, the, the Dragon oh, Age one. copycat. Um, but yeah, let's uh, get into something that is distracting, and let's talk about what Jolly Fish Press is, what they're doing, who TJ is, and what his, his job is. So, TJ, please introduce yourself to us and tell us everything we can learn about you guys. Sure. So... Uh, Jollyfish Press is um, was recently acquired by a company called North Star Editions. Uh, previously, we did um, anywhere from middle grade to adult, huge range of, of various titles. Um, some of the stuff that we're well known for is probably uh, Consider um, is a big one uh, by Christy Acevedo. Jerkbait by Mia Sigurd um, is another huge one right now. Uh, those both came out last year. Um, in October, we were acquired by North Star Editions, and recently they also acquired Flux. So um, we are an imprint of North Star Editions, and we do middle grade. We do um, uh, YA currently. We have some adult coming out, but we're not currently acquiring adult. Um, but uh, we, we do have a, I have a whole team of editors who are looking for the gambit going here. So middle grade adventure, fantasy, uh, YA thrillers to YA contemporary. Um, we kind of like to explore and, and try new things. Um, and, and we are a traditional publisher, just like you would get from the big five. Um, just not with quite a big of a name, but, uh, but we do everything just as well. Um, I have a lot of lot of friends in the big five industry, and and we compare notes often. So you're getting high quality stuff, um, just like you would from the big five, uh, coming right through Jollyfish Press. Uh, we have national distribution, national sales team, national marketing team. Uh, we have international agents. Um, so you know we have a currently I can't say the name of the book, but we currently have books being looked at by. Uh, some Spanish publishers, like in Spain. Um, so we're—I mean, we're we're going worldwide. So it's pretty exciting. About how many, uh, roughly, how many titles does Jollyfish Press have? Uh, we have over—I think we're 
just approaching 50 right now. So we're kind of new. We started in 2011 is when we started. Um, it took a little while to get up going full speed. Um, and we're planning on doing between 10 and 20, 10 and 20 a year is kind of our goal. Okay. So how many uh, submissions do you get? And then weed down to 10 to 20. A lot. I think this past year we did two to 3000 submissions in one year. Oh, wow. Uh, so yeah, it's weeding down to 10 to 20 out of that. Your odds are not good. <laughs> um, but uh, quick tip, if you send, send the query addressed to an editor, you are tons more likely to actually get looked at because we do have interns going through our slush pile because we just, I can't go to, through 3,000 titles a year. Like I just don't have time to do that. So we do have interns to, to kind of siphle, siphle? That's now a word <laughs> to, sift, <laughs> to sift through that uh, that slush pile for us. So if you actually go to our website, we have all of our editors' names up there. Look at what we're looking for specifically and say, hey, to TJ or to Reese or to Caroline. Um, and that almost guarantees you that that editor is actually going to pick up that piece and take a look at it, um, even if it is in the slush pile. So, right, so what is your job? You're like a managing editor contracting person or do you actually pick and choose the books or are you telling what other people to pick and choose or yeah what? so yeah what we end up what i end up doing is since the acquisition by north star editions i'm kind of a the point of contact between our team the point is is to keep everything running smoothly because with mergers there's always <laughs> issues arise and um, but everything's running uh, super smoothly. We're very, very excited about this merger. And, and my, my point is to really just keep everyone running the same. So to make sure that my editors are functioning the same way that they functioned previously and under this new leadership. So I'm a, I'm, I'm a middleman. I also acquire. I also edit. Um, I'm kind of a jack of all trades when it comes to the publishing industry at the moment. I work on some some marketing stuff, and um, I just kind of make sure everything is running smoothly through the whole department. Uh, as a fun point, do you have any um, crazy slush pile stories of submissions that just should not have been going out, or? Uh, yeah, the, we actually have a folder that we save these to, <laughs> um, and so that we can look back and, and read them when we need to laugh. My, my personal favorite one uh, must have come several years ago, but I don't, no, no one's beat it so far. Um, it's, I, I seriously thought it was a troll at first, but it went on for like 50 pages. So someone put in some serious work. Um, it, is, it started out something to the effect of, hi, will you please be my honey bunny? I would love for you to publish my book. And then they went on saying how awesome it was. And uh, I, de I demand a, uh, an advance of $1 million because this will make you rich overnight. Um, and then it just kind of degenerated from there, talking about how they wanted us to to be their, their, their love bunny and their honey bunny. And you can see why I thought it was a troll at first. But uh -huh. then they actually had a submission 
sent to us and you could read it in chapter one and it started um, and it went on for 50 pages um, and it was just about like the diary of them meeting their Canadian lover or something. It was, <laughs> it was really strange. My favorite chapter was, I think it was like chapter 36 gas, $2 and 50 cents. Chapter 37. Like that was all. In <laughs> like, it was, it was hilarious. I, I, that's the story I always tell people. I mean, sometimes you get things in crayon, some like, you know, yeah, we, we save them all, but that, I think that's the, the top of the cake. No one's ever called me honey bunny before. Um, and then demanding a million dollar advance as I think that takes the cake. All right. Um, so what does a good query look like so that we don't um, end up in that folder if we decide to send to you? You're right, right. Um, so really, query letters are really simple. I think people overthink them. Um, I think the best query letters you have, like, the first thing you do is you say to an editor, right? Don't say to whom am I concerned. Don't say to editors. Find out their name. It generally isn't that hard to find out an editor's name. Uh, you go to the website, you, you, can, you can look them up online, whatever, just find an editor's name, do a little bit of research and see what they're looking for specifically and send it to that editor. Um, a 2TJ, right, if you're sending it to me, 2TJ, your next line is going to be a quick pitch that's going to get me excited about the book. This is gonna, one or two lines. Um, this is where you can kind of pull out that high concept. This is Firefly meets um, Harry Potter, right? Okay, that's a quick one line that's like, that gives me a brief idea of what I'm, what, what this book is going to be. Now it better be awesome because both of those are insanely good. Um, so don't, <laughs> don't oversell yourself because you will get to the point where I start reading and the first line isn't amazing, and so I throw you away. Um, so don't don't compare yourself to to amazing amazing people unless you are absolutely amazing, which you aren't. I mean, you aren't the next J.K. Rowling. It's just that's the fact. Um, but then after that one line, then you have a one paragraph. We're talking, I don't know, three to five sentences maybe. Um, that kind of give a brief rundown of what the plot is in your book. Have character, conflict, and consequence built into that paragraph. Those are kind of the three C's you want to make sure you go for. The fourth C is the core of your story. So kind of like a kind of like a, a wedding ring, you have the four C's on that. This is the four C's of query letter. Um, conflict, consent, consequence, conflict, yeah, character, conflict, consequence, core, uh, core uh, the core of your story. But get that all down into like five sentences. The next one, the next paragraph, I like to have a brief idea of the marketability, right? Uh, comparable titles. Um, have, if you have any sort of marketing plan, say, hey, this will hit this group. This is what I plan to do for that group. Uh, stuff like that. The next paragraph is very brief about you. Notice about you is at the very bottom. Do not put it at the top. Don't say, hi, my name is such and such and such and such. I've written this book. I don't care. I don't care who you are. Um, unless you're Brandon Sanderson, then <laughs> put your name at the top. Okay. Um, or, you know, Stephen King. Um, I don't care who you are until I have something to care about, which is your story. So once I care about your story, now I care about who you are. 
So you put that last, you put how long your book is, the genre your book is, uh, your name, any pertinent information that relates to the publishing world. So I have published four, four, story, four short stories in these magazines uh, or these anthologies or, or so, something to that effect. I don't care if you took a creative writing class in college and you wrote a story. That doesn't mean anything to me. Um, only if it's... Uh, pertinent information. This isn't like a job application where you're trying to make yourself, oh, well, I did this in college and uh, I managed such and such. And, like, it doesn't matter. Unless you were like an, the editor for the school college paper and I can recognize the name of that paper maybe. Um, stuff like that. So Leading Edge would be a good, hey, I have a story published in Leading Edge that happens to be a popular magazine here in Utah. Um, so stuff like that um, is, is pertinent uh, information. After that, sign off uh, and go from there. So that's just the query letter. Uh, did I answer your question? I think I got covered everything. Yeah, uh, I certainly learned a bit. But um, in the about me section, would you also be uh, concerned about, say, blogs that they've been doing, or perhaps podcasts about writing? Yes. Um, so really that about you, you also want to establish your platform. So what a platform is, a lot of people think a platform is like social media or, or blog or podcast, which it encompasses that, but it's also any other, um, media in which you can have a part in. So if you guest write on a, um, Buzzfeed or something, you know, just, if, if you have any other avenues in which you can be seen, not necessarily to sell your book, but just that you are out there in the world doing something, um, that that kind of all encompasses your platform. And you definitely will want that in the About Me uh, section there. This podcast is useful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, yeah, um, no, the, yeah, podcasts like this are, are wonderful to put in there. Hey, I've been running this podcast for you know, X amount of time and we have X amount of, you know, viewer, viewers, listeners, I guess they're listening, not viewing, right? Yeah, X amount of uh, listeners each month, yada, yada. That's good because now that, that says that when you publish something and you say on your podcast, hey, I'm being productive. I got a book that came out. It's such and such and such this, right? You know, in, in, in your guys' case, right? Mm -hmm. uh, okay. That means everybody's going to hear about that. All right. Um, cool. Uh, so, question about money, I suppose, is uh, instead of a million dollar advance, what is an average advance for a book <laughs> that you guys have? Um, us specifically, it's pretty low. Um, I'm not allowed to offer any numbers for our for our company specifically, but if you were to even go to say the big five, um, I know several authors. If you get a two thousand dollar advance, that's not bad. Um, I think two to uh, under ten thousand dollar advance is is normal. Um, I would say that if you're going over 10,000, that's kind of wishful thinking for a first-time author. Um, it happens, and, and it happens not super rarely, but I wouldn't expect it. Uh, for a smaller company, you're looking at maybe 
500 to 1,000, somewhere in there, advance, um, if an advance is offered at all. Now, I know a lot of authors want advances because they're like, I need the money, like, I'm getting paid. Um, but there are other alternatives to receiving an advance, say, negotiating higher, higher royalties for one mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, can, can be nice. Oh, you won't give me advance, but can I get a higher royalty for that? Or, or something to that effect. I know a lot of our authors who haven't received an advance actually made more money from us than they would have going to the big five strictly because we offered higher royalties. Um, and now and that's a case by case basis, obviously, but that kind of gives you an idea that don't strive for a very high advance because chances are you won't get one. Um, that is make sure all your writing worthwhile. It's really the royalties is where you're going to end up making, making that money usually. And then your second or your third or your fourth book or your, even your fifth book, that's where you actually start making money. The average salary or quote unquote salary yearly, yearly earnings of a writer, I think is 20 to 30 grand um, for a professional writer who has, you know, five to six books out and is still writing more. So this is not a career in which you can expect to be, you know, rolling in the dough. (laughs) Until something miraculous happens, right? Um. Exactly. I mean, there's. I, I have plenty of friends, of plenty of people who are making thirty to fifty grand a year, being being a writer. Um, that isn't. I would say that's probably not normal. I think that's probably the top. You know, eighty percent. So so twenty percent of writers who make it their life commitment to write and do it for a job are probably making 30 to 50,000. Uh, the top 1% are making more than that. Um, and then, you know, 60 to 80% of writers who try to make it in this world are under, you know, 20, 20 grand or under. Um, so it's, it's a rough world out there. Um, to answer your question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, about royalties, is it usually a percentage of the sale or is it a dollar amount per book? Yeah, so that will vary greatly by publisher. Um, you can have royalty, which is on gross sales, uh, which is the overall, like all sales of the book, you earn a percentage of that or you earn uh, money, money based on that. Or you'll have uh, on net sales, so whatever profit that was made, you get a percentage of that. Or it'll be on um, the the list. The, so, so, so now there's list price and there's sale price. So if you have, or, or cover price and list price, sorry, my apologies. Uh, list price is going to be whatever it was sold for. So, well, the book is an MSRP for $15 or whatever it is. But Amazon sold it for $10. Now you earn a percentage of royalty off of that listed price. Or if it's in your contract for the cover price, it doesn't matter what the book is sold for. You earn royalties based off of the actual cover price, regardless of what it's sold for. Um, So there's a bunch of different ways to get paid for each book. Um, I I know some publishers that say, okay, well, you earn a flat $1 per book sold. 
regardless of what it's sold for. Um, you know, it just all depends. It's all going to be in your contract, and it's all going to be case by case and publisher basis. What about uh, digital? Does it, do you all have different contracts for that, or is that sort of just the same idea, but for Kindle versions or whatnot? Yeah, it's going to be very similar um, idea. Generally, you'll get a lot higher royalties on on those, but it's not going to be as high as most people think, right? Most people for eBooks, they're like, well, it's free. Like, you don't have to print it. Like, why can't I get 80% royalties? Um, and that's just crazy. Um, essentially, what you're looking at is I've seen eBook royalties as low as 15 to 20%, which I, th I think is pretty low, personally. Um, as high as 60%. Um, which in my opinion is very high. 60% is really high. Because essentially what you're doing is you still, when you, while the book itself that you're selling isn't costing anything to produce because it's digital, it had costs applied to it when, it when we were editing it, when we were creating the design for it, when we laid it out for Kindle, right? So there's still things that need to be paid th that we we paid up front to do. So while the, the book digital copy isn't costing us anything to produce, it still needs to get us the money back that we spent on to make the original master copy um, and things like that, if that makes sense. So yeah. that's why royalties aren't super high. But that also means if you self-publish or something, uh, I think Amazon offers 80% royalties um, if you self-publish through them and your book ebook is less than nine ninety nine. I think they offer 80% royalties. Right. It's, on, uh, it's but, something like that, yeah. But it's also got to yeah, be above but, another threshold, too. It's like it's got to be between like 2 and $9 or something for 80%. Yeah, 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 something like that. So you can get a lot, but, you know, you have to pay for your own editing if you do that. You have to pay for your own cover, right? You, you have to put a lot more up front, right. um, which is what we are trying to recoup by giving you, you know, 30% royalties or, or whatever it, whatever it is. Right. Plus, so, I'm assuming there's some there's marketing and other other costs in there for that right. as well. Right. Yeah. So when you have a digital ebook up there, you know, we may run a digital marketing campaign or something. Mm -hmm. um, you know, put it on sale on BookBub. You know, what whatever it is. Right. We're still spending money, and we need to recoup that money um, again. So. Right. Uh, so, uh, not counting advances. Um how much money do you spend per book for like the packaging, the selling, the distributing, the marketing? Sure. That varies. You're not going to like my answer. Uh, that varies <laughs> widely on a book by book basis. Um, and that's going to vary widely depending on who you're asking, um, who's doing the publishing, um, I can't legally give any numbers. Um, of what we've done in the past, but I would, I would say, strictly on marketing, there is there generally is a budget. It's generally lower than they used to be uh, five, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, um, because with the advent of the ebook and Amazon, <laughs> right, word of mouth is the best way to sell a book. Hands down, word of mouth. And the best way to sell that book is through the author, um, actually. 
if you dump a bunch of money, and, and we've done this in the past, I'll, I won't admit any numbers, but we've spent a lot of money on books before with zero return on that, on that marketing. Um, now, some of that was, in the beginning, we were fresh. We didn't know what we were doing. Um, so we did go through this process of figuring out, spending money on books, figuring out what is working and what's not. And really what it comes down to is the, the best thing that you can do is have a great author who is pushing their book. Um, when you think about uh, The Hunger Games, offhand, do you guys know who published The Hunger Games? Company. Nope. Colin would be the best bet. No. Okay. Right? No one really knows. Who's the author? Suzanne Collins. There you go. So if the person who wrote the book comes up to you and said, this is an awesome book, you know my name, will you buy my book? Chances are you're going to be like, whoa, you're Suzanne Collins. Yeah, I'm going to buy your book, right? If the person who published it came up to you and said, hey, I'm this such and such person. Oh, I don't know who you are. We published this book. Will you buy it? No, who are you? Um, that kind of gives you an idea of how marketing works when it comes to books. Um, if people feel like they know the author, they'll buy the author. You don't really know who publishes books. We're kind of in the background. Uh, sadly. Um, so us spending a ton of money and by a ton, I'm talking like tens, you know, 10,000 or more, right? That, that's a lot of money. Um, we aren't going to see a return on investment in that. Now, if we invest some of that money into the author themselves or maybe send them to events or something like this, that's going to be a lot better a return on that we're building that author's brand and that author can then use that brand to sell books much more effectively than we can. Did that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we've, we've talked about a lot of like the bad stuff that happens. <laughs> like you're not going to, it's, it's really tough, but okay. Right. So say, say we get the, uh, like we get the contract, like how does the writer's life change now that they have this publishing deal? You know, what, what's the, some of the sure. good stuff and cool stuff that happens besides just <laughs> this publishing deal? <laughs> uh, which is funny to say, what, what's the good stuff that happens? Because as soon as you say, what happens when they get the contract? I'm like, hmm, well, they got deadlines now. They have to do what we say. They, um, <laughs> no, the, my favorite part is giving the author the call and saying, hey, I'd like to offer you a deal, right? Um, talk, talking to them about their contract, going over it. Um, once that's done and signed, it's it's such an amazing feeling to feel like somebody is interested in your work. Um, the benefits of having that signed is you get invited to um, conferences. I know authors, a lot of our authors are getting paid to go to conferences for free. Um, so that's neat. If you like going to conferences, you know, maybe you could present at one and get paid to go to a conference rather than having to pay $300 to get into the conference. Um, that's a, that's a cool perk. Um, you get, people start taking notice of you a bit more. So it's like in the industry. So you publish a book, it'll go up on publishers weekly. I've had, I've had authors who get published and then they get contacted by an agent because agents watch, watch publishers weekly. Um, uh, stuff like that. Uh, the other benefits you're you're looking at is 
you're going to see your book in print. Um, you're going to have the opportunity to go out there and show your significant other and saying, see physical proof. I did it. Um, <laughs> yes. But really spite. For, yeah. For, for, for your first book, I know I wanted to focus on the good here, but for your first book, there isn't a lot of awesome stuff that starts happening until you, until you say, Hey, they signed my contract for my second book or my third book or for my whole series or, or something like that. Now you have kind of a, a goal and, something to move towards. Personally, I think the biggest benefit to getting that contract is um, validation. Okay, is there any it kind of like... the work that you've done. Sorry, go ahead. Is there any kind of like support structure that like Jollyfish or another publisher will put in their editors, you know, people like, hey, like helping you get ideas through or whatever? It, it, that really, really, really depends on the publisher and the editor. I work very closely with my authors. So if I were to say acquire you, um, we, we'd go through the book. I'd give you, you know, edits on the book. I'd walk you through the steps on this is how you want, to, want it to be improved. This is how we're going to grow. Um, if you have questions, I'm always open for them. I work very closely with authors. And I want to make sure that they feel like they do have that support. Now, that's not everybody, okay? I know plenty of publishing houses that you send it to them. You don't. You get the contract. You don't hear from them for three months. And then you say, okay, get this done in two days. Lit I, this literally happened to a friend of mine. Um, hey, cut, cut this book by 20,000 words in two days. And that's the first time that she ever heard from him. <laughs> so... There are some that have supports. We have a uh, we have a Facebook close Facebook group for all of our Jollyfish Press authors. Um, so there's that. We do encourage you to join certain groups. Like if you're a debut author, um, we do make sure that you go to Twitter and find the relevant uh, Twitter hashtag. There's always like a year. Uh, Sixteen was the sweet sixteens, um, and it's all debut authors that are coming out in 2016. Um, and they all support each other. They have like marketing plans that they do for each other. They like pass the arcs around. They will always announce when the book's coming out, you know, stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. It's free marketing, free support. Um, highly recommend. I think 17 is, I can't remember off, offhand what, what 17 is, but uh, there's stuff like that. Did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. So uh, how do you select the books that you want to invest in to publish and to edit? Because you might get uh, first three chapters and it has a good story, but it's really rough. And how do you weed out the ones that are worth it? It's, re it's really tough. Um, so I said, I mean, we take, to make the math easy, right? We take two, two, 2,000 submissions. We narrow it down to 20. Um, again, making the math easy, right? So that is one in every hundred um, that we get. So to do that, you have to you have to love the piece. Um, you you have to want to read this book four to five times and not get sick of it. 
um, that's kind of always a a bar for me. If if I'm reading something and it, I, I guess let, let's start over. I kind of go in stages. So if I if I read the first three and I'm like I kind of want to see what happens next, I don't ask for it. <laughs> as weird as that sounds, if I go ooh. I really want to see what happens next. I will ask for the, the full manuscript. When I'm reading the full manuscript, I then sort of keep a tally in my head of how many things I'm going to have to fix as I go through. Then by the time I get to the end, I kind of put it aside and say, ooh, okay, well, I love it, but it's going to take a lot of work. So I let it sit for up to a month sometimes. And if I'm still thinking about that book, then I'll go back and say, okay, maybe this one's worth it. Um, if I've kind of forgotten about the book after a month, then I won't acquire it. Um, and really, these are simply levels of that I have to go through to make sure I'm not personally editing 10 books a year. There, I think one time I got up to seven or eight books I was editing in one year while also running the department. Oh, that was too much. I completely burned myself out. I had to end up giving a couple away to my other editors, and I always hate doing that um, because I built the rapport with the author, and I have to be like, I'm sorry, I have to give you to somebody else because I just don't have time. And that really what, that's really what it comes down to is it's time. It's how much time do I have? This book is amazing, but it needs too much work. And if I don't have time to put in that work, the book may be amazing, but I just can't take it. Um, oftentimes when that happens, though, I'll do what's called a revise and resubmit. So if I absolutely love it, I'll be like, okay, it takes too much to change. I'll write up a quick email, maybe one page that says, please take these notes, revise and resubmit it to us. And if those changes come back with, they did a really good job with it, or they were very receptive, um, then I might actually look into acquiring it because I know that they're going to work really hard to, to make it the best book that it possibly can be. Um, if they come back and they say, okay, well, we made your changes, but I don't see like any, what that they didn't change the rest of the book to meet those changes. Right? Like if I say, okay, the book needs to start here instead. So they just start the book there and then just like leave everything else the same. Well, you didn't adapt your opening to start there, right? The, now we're missing key information. There's a lot more to editing and adjusting than what the editor says. And that's something that I look for in a, in a revise, revise and resubmit. My best authors, I will tell them, hey, change this. They'll change something else, but it fixes the problem that I was talking about. Um, that's the best way to do it, because authors generally will understand the book better than I do. Um, they have read it, you know, I may have read it four or five times, but they've read it a hundred times or more while writing it. Um, so they understand the characters. They understand what what I'm asking them, and they can adjust the edits based on that. So I'm not looking for somebody who just does what I tell them to do, because generally speaking, the author is smarter than me on how to change something. I'm just pointing out problems. You need to learn how to fix it. I'll generally give you a suggestion, but that may not be the right way to fix it. Does that make sense? So yeah. I guess I've kind of gone off on a tangent here. 
we were talking about how how I decide what to acquire. Um, yeah, so it's like um, if things are more like a, a structural plot or world building, say problem, that's more worrying than say someone who has issues with grammar. Yeah, the if you have a lot of grammar issues, I'll just throw it away because it's irritating. More of a pet peeve than than anything. I mean, we have copy editors. Your copy editors can fix your grammar mistakes. I mean, we pay copy editors to do that. So, if it's just if it's just grammar errors, but the rest of it's awesome, that's not a big deal. Um, we'll fix it. If it's just your ending, but everything else is really good, that's fine. I'm really good at fixing endings. That's probably the thing that I'm best at. I can fix endings. Um, because really all, all it generally takes is, well, let's foreshadow this here and let's tie in these two themes that you put here and let's make sure that your resolutions hit one, two, three, right in a row, boom, it's fixed. Like, it's a matter of moving things around. The, the toughest thing to fix is voice. If you don't have a good mm -hmm. voice, I can't fix that for you. I, I have to write it for you and I don't have time to do that. The next toughest thing to fix is... Um, Character. If you don't have intriguing characters, that's a little harder to put in there. Um, plot is actually pretty easy to fix. Because um, generally speaking, if you've written a whole book and you're interested by it, chances are you have the structures of a plot that can be worked with. So generally it's like, okay, well, let's make this your midpoint instead. Let's make this a turning point. Let's make sure that you're... Uh, Character starts and begins in proper places to get the resolution we need. That stuff takes a bit longer, but if that's the only thing that, that you have an issue with, I, I've fixed whole books by saying, okay, move these chapters here, this chapter here, this chapter here, this is your midpoint, change the beginning, and you're done. And it sounds like a lot, but, I mean, if you're just moving stuff around, it really isn't that much work. Um or changing viewpoints, I do that too. Um, but really, it, I don't look at it, how much work is it going to take the author? I look at how much work is it going to take me. If I can say, change these scenes, change this point of view, and be done, that's not much work for me. It may be a lot of work for the author, but it's not much work for me. And that's how I gauge um, what I take. Does that answer your question? I may have gone off on another tangent. Well, uh, I think it answers it. If anything, I'm learning. That's... The important part. Really good. Um, so, uh, as of right now, Jollyfish and its uh, sister companies are looking towards uh, YA or mid-grade. Um, are there kind of like trends that you guys are looking for? Do you even care about trends at all? Yeah, well, I mean, everything. Everyone's going to care about trends because I mean, this is a business, right? I mean, we need to figure out what's selling. So when I create a list of books, I always want to make sure I'm hitting certain points. So sci-fi thrillers do really well, at least for us. Okay? <laughs> so I always need to make sure we have some sort of sci-fi thriller in that year's list. That's a personal thing that I want to make sure we do because they sell. Um, there are other things like uh, middle-grade comedy sells really well but it's very hard to do so i always put that on my list but we've never required one <laughs> um 
and then just because the bar is so high for comedy, James Patterson puts out so many of these things, right? Um, <laughs> sorry, her face is awesome. <laughs> Those of you who can her face. Uh, uh, he was like, give me that squint, like, what? <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, so, 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 so he does a ton. They sell really well. Um, then you have like the, um, whoa, it just blew out of my mind. Uh, the name of the the nerd that everyone picks on middle grade well, made hey, recently into a wimpy movie. Kid? Yeah, Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Yeah, 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 Wimpy Kid. Thank you. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. If you walk into a Target and you go to the kids section, it's all comedy. Uh, and <laughs> for, for for books, all the books are. It's all comedy. Um, so they sell really, really well, but it has to be very good very good comedy um so that's another thing um uh, nya very uh contemporary does very well um in what does contemporary mean oh sure it, it means it takes place in the normal normal okay. world nowadays you could walk outside and be in that book generally okay um then you also have the the thing with with ya that i that I think I would warn people against or for or to do whatever um, is to make sure that your YA does not follow basic stereotypes. Um, the YA readership is very, very savvy. They, they generally read a lot and they generally um, understand that your the, the, the basic stereotypes of the guy saves the girl, yada, 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 right? You don't want to follow gender stereotypes. You don't want to um, follow um, standard standard gender roles or um, even uh, sexuality norms, um, if you want to say that. I said that with quotes so no one gets mad at me. Um, <laughs> really, what you want to do is make sure you represent the world as it is, right? Don't whitewash, you know, have racial diversity, have people who are not um, just the, the term cis, cisgender uh, would be male loving female, female loving male, you know, have things that, you know, have people who aren't interested in romantic relationships whatsoever. It happens. Um, you know, uh, Mia Seeger just did a great one on uh, jerkbait about uh, hockey and um, how how hard it is to be gay in sports. Um, like that is a real world situation. Um, you know, it's it's not going to work quite as well if how hard it is to have a white male in playing hockey like no that's that's normal um you know and anyone can understand that because we see it all the time ya wants to see things that they don't see all the time they want to understand things that is outside of their circle um right they we we all have circles in in at school or whatever it is and we want to make sure that we're representing the whole world not their circle that's how YA wants their books to be done. Currently, that's what I'm seeing. 
so that makes it's, sense. It kind of sounds like uh, the angsty teenagers want to see and read about other people's struggles as like an avenue of angsty teenagerness. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it has to do with angsty teenagerness. Um, they just want to feel like they, I personally, I feel it has to do with um, wanting to empathize. And they want to empathize with somebody that they don't understand necessarily. Or, or alternatively, someone who they think they didn't understand, they realize they do understand um, because of X or Y. Um, I don't know how to, I would label it as it's their angst necessarily, because um, the YA readership also extends beyond teens as well. In fact, a lot of the YA readership, um, you know, are in their 20s and their, in their 30s even. Um, so we just want to make sure that we are representing a, a world that is not all white male. Uh if my comment isn't too wrong with the angsty teenagerness, is do you think that has anything to do with the massive surge in dystopian that we had and maybe still have? I don't know. Uh, dystopian is pretty much out as far as the industry is concerned, like publishing industry. However, it actually has a following in self-publishing. Oh, okay. Uh, so that being said, your question was actually, um, why did dystopian become so popular? Essentially, Basically. yeah. Um, I think it had to do with the fact that um, too much of the world tries to portray the world as being a fair world, being a perfect world. Um, you get, you know, you get you get what you want, um, and I think the dystopian shined a light on the world, showing that the world is not unfair. The world is not perfect. And it gave YA readers an avenue to see that if you try to make something perfect, it will fail. Um, and, and I think that that's kind of almost an, an escape, really, showing that now you can relate this dystopian to our world in some way. You take Hunger Games, right? I wouldn't technically classify it as a dystopian. I have my own thoughts on that. I think it's actually more of a cyberpunk, which is strange. But I would love um, to hear your your reasoning behind that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but Hunger Games really, you look at it and it's it takes a look at our entertainment system and makes fun of it. Really, it's 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 a satire on our entertainment system. That's what Hunger Games is. Um, in, in, in a nutshell, and it demonstrates that while we think everything is hunky-dory um, and we love watching TV, it it opens up the mind to see see it's not perfect. And I think that really helps teens as they're growing to see that we need to question the world because I think I think they want to do that. I think I think most people want to question the world. But they are told from a young age, do what you're told, right? So dystopian is sort of a way to almost rebel um, and open up your mind to the realities of what the world is actually like um, without, without you know, being too realistic because there is an escapism to it as well. Did that answer your question? Yeah, 
I think so. Uh, so. Do you guys have questions? Do you ever pick up a book and go, oh, God, this is terrible, but it's going to sell like crazy? Does that ever happen for you? Yes. <laughs> um, when this happens, I can't, I have a couple of editors that owe oh, you a favor, and I say, "Hey, I I hate this book, but I think you'll like it. But it it will sell. So take a look at it. If you like it, I'll back you on uh, acquiring it, and we'll go from there." Um, we all have personal taste, right? You, you can't not have personal taste. Um, I thought I could edit stuff that I really didn't like. And I found that I absolutely hate doing that. Um, go figure, right? <laughs> yeah. But I'm lucky enough that uh, we've hired a a very diverse group of editors um, in, in what they like. Um, we aren't too diverse out here in Utah, sadly, um, <laughs> as far as nationality goes. But uh, as far as what we like, we like a lot of different stuff. So if I find something and I think it will sell, but I hate it, I will pass it on to another editor and let them do the acquisition for it if they feel like it's, it's going to be something that's golden. Did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have another question about YA because um, we had an episode talking about word choice, and then it just devolved into talking about cuss words. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Brandon Sanderson featured prominently. Um, but like, what is allowed or what is uh, successful in YA as terms of cuss words or even explicit content in general? YA, as a genre, doesn't have any rules against uh, profanity, against uh, sexuality. Um, there are no set rules that will, you know, like a movie, right? You say the F word three times and it's automatically rated R, right? Like, mm -hmm. there's nothing that will do that to a YA. Um, some YAs have a lot of swearing. Some have none. Um, so as far as what I find successful, I feel like you need to use language as the character would use it. However, well, I have a whole nother thing on profanity. I have, I'm, I'm a psych, I have a degree in psychology, so I have Yay, me too. On, uh, <laughs> on profanity and how that affects the brain. And when you, when you actually swear, you aren't actually saying a word, you're actually speaking an emotion. Yada, yada, yada. Um, but outside of that, um, the, the word choice, profanity can be powerful, okay? So like an exclamation point, you want to use it extremely rarely, otherwise it loses its power. Um, now there are some where you aren't using profanity for power, you're using it because that's how people talk. Um, which is okay if that's what your book is about. Generally speaking, you will limit your audience to some degree um, if you have a lot of profanity. You just will. Um, in fact, I have um, Consider, 
I think has three F words in it. And then the occasional, um, you know, the occasional other profanity that isn't as profane as deemed by society. <laughs> um, but we did lose, I had some people say, oh, I would have loved the book, but, you know, it dropped an F-bomb and I, nah, 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 right? That happened. Or it had a sex scene in it. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> right? You will lose people for that. You will. But, I mean, alternatively, you could gain a whole nother, <laughs> oh, you know, there are teens who will read a book and they see the F word on the first page. They're like, oh, I'm going to read this. Um, it happens. So you really just have to figure out what your market is and where you're going. Um, and I don't have a ton of experience with figuring out what the sweet spot is. Um, I'm doing a book coming out next year that is, it, it, well, this one's adult, but it's got uh, swearing in it like crazy. It's super profane. Um, but it's not, it's not getting into, you know, erotic or anything, but it, you know, you do have that sexuality in there. Um, and it's kind of, it's something that I know is going to sell. It's going to work well because of the market that we're sending it to. Um, and, and I chose to, well, I think I'm actually, I'm still going to cut back some of those, some of the profanity because I want to make sure it's not alienating people while still hitting that uh, 18 to 35 year old male audience sort of thing. Did I answer your question? Yeah, sort of. Um, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> close enough. <laughs> yeah, everything's close enough. Uh, although you, you did just remind me of like, uh, how much is the readership, as or at least um, in your experience at your job, is it male versus female is reading YA? Or what type of book? Uh, or yeah, so a lot of it's female. Um, I'd say most of it's female. Uh, generally what you'll get is with, with males, for whatever reason, what we found is they'll read middle grade all the way up, and then they'll either stop reading once they you know, get into YA. They just stop and then never come back to it, which is sad. Um, or they skip right over and read adult. Um, so the team... The teens that are reading are often reading adult. The males are often reading adult just as much as they're reading YA, um, and obviously that splits their time, and they end up reading um, a, a, adult. Now that's probably more true for fantasy than it is for, say, Percy Jackson or or, or, or those urban fantasies. Um, if you go full on fantasy, um, you know Tolkien esque, right? Males generally skip over YA completely because there's too much romance in it uh, for them. Um, funny enough, but uh, then then you have to work on striking that balance. We are releasing one, Fall of the Dragon Prince. No, actually, it just came out last last week, Tuesday. Hmm. Just, yeah, it just came out. Um, Fall of the Dragon Prince, and we're striving really hard to find that that male fantasy readership. Um, because honestly, well, that's another tangent I won't go off on. Um, your question, it looks like demogra demographically for YA, it's mostly females. I think that was your question. Yeah. It, is that just because of the story content type or is it like the males go after 
something that's more like literarily challenging, like Name of the Wind type thing or what? No, I think it just has to do with females tend to be more interested in continuing reading after middle grade. Uh. Um, guys tend to stop reading after middle grade. And of course, these are huge generalities. Um, talking about very large demographic pools. Um, and that that's really that's really it. You'll see maybe five or ten years ago that almost all YA and middle grade protagonists were male because guys generally speaking don't like reading female points of view. That's that's just something that the industry has figured out. Uh, guys generally the JK Rowling they made her change her name to J.K. Rowling specifically because they thought this book was aimed at boys and boys would not read a female author. It's, it's marketing. Um, so the weird thing about it is that girls don't mind reading male. <laughs> so they would read, that's why you had so many male protagonists in middle grade and YA because they would read male and guys didn't want to read female so you make them all male um stuff but like now that. is it shifting towards like a more equal split or more towards yes. girl protagonists yes so now it's um i haven't looked at the demographics for this based on what i'm seeing personally i'd say it's shifting more towards female protagonists um which i think is which i actually i actually like because you know what that's going to do is that's going to force boys to read female protagonists and then they'll realize wait i actually don't mind reading this i i just had some sort of block against it because i thought i had to be manly or something well whatever it is right um and i think it's going to help expand the the readership a bit more um yeah did that answer your question yeah okay <laughs> So we're actually getting close to time here, but if you want to give us like your big like do not do this thing or couple of things for for writers and their books, what would it be? Um, do not follow. I'm trying to figure out how to phrase it. Um. Do not send me a book that hasn't been edited three or four times. Um, once you finish a book, it's once you've written it, it's not done. You need to edit it several times. Get get a writing group to tell you what they hate about it, because hopefully they will if you have the right people. Um, a rough draft. Let, let me tell you a quick story here. Um, Christy's going to hate me for this. Um, Christy's one of my authors, Christy Acevedo. She wrote Consider. She did, I think I, when she sent it to me originally, when I acquired it, it was on its fourth or fifth draft. The second book in the series comes out later this year. She sent me the first draft. <laughs> and it was, it wasn't very good. Um, but that just goes to show, Consider just got nominated for the Philip K. Dick Award, which is potentially the largest um, sci-fi award in the nation right now. Um, 
So that just goes to show she is an awesome writer, and her first draft was not very good. <laughs> uh, her second draft still wasn't very good. Uh, we're still working on what for the fourth or fifth draft right now, and it's getting to the point where we're starting to, you know, oh, it this is great. It is phenomenal. So I guess my number one thing is my number one thing has always been just write. Yeah. Whatever you do, write. If it sucks, fine. Whatever. Just write. You cannot edit a blank page. I cannot edit a blank page. You know, I can't acquire something that's not completed. Um, you know, it just doesn't make sense for me to do that. Um, so when you look at it, you need to write. Once it's done, you need to then edit. The, the worst thing that you can do is NaNoWriMo comes up. You write the book, you write 50,000 words, and then you send it the next day. Don't do that. Oh, oh my God. Publishers will hate you. I know publishers who specifically do not accept submissions in December for that reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's bad. Um, and most of them are horrible. And that's fine. It can be horrible. A ref, the only thing a rough draft needs to do is exist. Okay? It doesn't need to be good. That's it comforting. just needs to exist. That's, okay? that, that's how I try to write. <laughs> just like, just get it out yeah. there. <laughs> no, that's good. I mean, you t- look at, uh, you mentioned Brandon Sanderson. Mm-hmm. Um, his white, his book, White Sand, I think was the first book he ever wrote. Um, I think it's just now coming out as a graphic novel. Um, but this was years and years and years ago, and he rewrote the whole thing. Um, he read a bit of it on writing excuses. And it is horrible. <laughs> it's so bad. Um, and you're like, Brandon Sanderson wrote this? Yeah. Because all it needed to do was exist. I think he wrote 13 or 14 books before he got published. But, yeah. but, but that's the mentality that you need to go into. Don't anticipate getting published off of your first book. It happens, but you need to just continue to write. Uh, don't expect that you're going to be awesome. Uh, who was it? Uh, they said, I'm, I feel so bad. I'm not going to quote, quote this person properly. Um, if anyone publishes you before you've written one million words, that's their mistake. Um, the first million words are practice. Nothing under a million words is ever going to sell. And if it does, well, cheer. They messed up, but run away with your check and laugh. Um, because if you sell anything under a million words, that's luck. Man, I just feel I, like packing it in right now and say, fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so, so for a million words, uh, the average novel length being 90 to 100,000 words, you're looking at writing at least 10 books before you get published. Um, if you go in with that mindset and you sell, hey, more power to you. But if you sell before the million words, um, but if you get to a million words, that's when you start thinking, oh, I haven't sold something yet. All right, well, I've written a million words. I'm going to sell something. And if you get to two million words and you haven't sold something, you know, don't give up. But that's, that's when you start 
that's that's the point when you start feeling like, uh oh, maybe I'm not as good, right? The the whole point is to say, if you haven't written a million words, don't judge yourself. So I guess that's the third thing: don't judge yourself. <laughs> Let the writing group judge you and Colin read my shit. God damn it. I publicly shame him for not reading my stuff yet. So. <laughs> she will stare you, Colin. It's on my list. God damn it. <laughs> like writing is on my list as well. <laughs> I've done yeah, wait, how, that, how that worked out for you the past couple <laughs> weeks. <laughs> well, I, uh... um, yeah, so just write, edit, and don't judge yourself until you've written over a million words. <laughs> my pace is going to take me like 50 years to hit a million <laughs> words. <laughs> Well, I, then you should write more. Well, You're not following the first principle. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm a full-time engineer, so <laughs> I, I have a lot of other stuff on my plate as well. <laughs> sure, sure. I I know I know a full-time scientist who books out who can book out thirty thousand words, um, in I think he did it in a week. Jeez. So he works in a lab. Um, he was getting like four, three to four hours of sleep a night, but it was important to him. So he wrote out 30, 35,000 words in a single week because it's, because it's important. So when you think it's important, when you know it's important, you make time. If you aren't making the time, maybe it's not as important to you as you thought. And I, I say this, me working 70, 80 hours a week. Um, I still find time to write. And if you're going to be a writer, you need to just make the time. But just <laughs> in general. All right. the, 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 there's no excuse big enough to say, I'm not writing because of this. If you If you let that be an excuse, that means writing is not important enough to you. Fair enough. We have uh, done an hour-ish of talking about the industry and writing and tips and all the stuff. Thank you, TJ, for everything that I have learned, at the very least. Um, please uh, like plug all of the ways that we can contact you and Jollyfish, and then we'll do all of sure. our stuff for Broken Jars, and, and then we're done. Yeah. So uh, Twitter is at TJ DeRosa Editor. Easy. Um, www.jollyfishpress.com on there. That's easy. Facebook, I think if you just look up uh, TJ space DA space ROZA, so it's just my name. I think I'm the first one to pop up on Facebook there, I think. Um, I'm in the midst of creating my own website. It's not up yet. Um, but I, I also do freelance editing as well. So outside of the industry, um, I'm also doing um, freelance work um, to help people get their books up to publication uh, quality or to help self-publish. I do that as well. Um, so that, what think, will be your website when it's up? I haven't decided yet. I've tried several okay. different things. Some, most of them are taken. So, uh, <laughs> so that, that is to be determined at the moment. Okay. I, I think that's it for me. All right. Well, we have the Broken Jars Network. I have, uh, let's see, obviously High Fantasy. I have the Justin Files podcast, which I'm 
we're doing a really dumb episode next time. But uh, Colin's <laughs> going to join at the very least, yes. and he's going to talk about Malazan. And Jacob, you should join us as well because you get to yell at Alex. Um, uh, what's the episode topic? Dresden versus everyone else in a fight. Oh, God, fuck. <laughs> I know. That's it, the dumbest like, fucking thing. I mean, if he kept it just within Dresden first, sure, let's do it. But he wants to talk about, like, Dresden versus Captain America, and it's, God damn it. Uh, so, I'm probably actually going to stab someone that day. You should join and watch. Um, but Jacob also does say Great Scott, which you're doing uh, yes, week, Chris Scott right? is next week. We oh, next week is dinner party. If so, if you're a fan Ooh, of the oh office, uh, we will be covering dinner party and a couple other episodes from season four. Uh, you can find me at at Jacob Ingles on Twitter. Um, we have our Patreon, Patreon.com oh, yes. forward slash Broken Jars. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have our Broken what at Broken Jars Pod. Yes, is our Twitter. At Broken Jars Pod. Uh, r slash Broken Jars Podcast on Reddit. Broken Jars uh, Broadcasting at gmail. Yes, Broken Jars Broadcasting at gmail.com. If you want to email us, we're all over the internet. If you can't find us, you're really bad with Google. <laughs> and um, see, Dangerous to Go Alone is going to come back on March 15th, he said. And Colin needs to do some more podcasting and join the rest of us and also <laughs> read my shit. Yep. Do your own podcast. Eventually, we'll get guilty pleasures going. That's the one I want to get going the most. Or shattered. <laughs> yeah, we've we've got more projects in the works as long as we ever schedule a time to do it. So I think that is the end of this episode, episode thirteen. We're we're in the double digits. Yay! Yay! We're a real podcast. Woo! <laughs> and this is consecutive episodes. Yes. <laughs> All right, well, everyone out there, hope it's uh, hope it's good whenever you're listening to this podcast. Bye. Bye.